And now it's time for We Are Just Christians, live from Savona Church in Port St. Lucie. Here are your hosts, Mike Schmidt and Gary Jones. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, and welcome to We Are Just Christians. We're really glad you tuned into the show today. Thank you for the introduction, Ray. We appreciate it. And we appreciate all you who are listening today to the show. I'd like to invite you to participate because We Are Just Christians is a live call-in show I'm going to give you the numbers or how to reach us in just a moment so you can join in the show. Uh, We have some very simple guidelines here about calls and about the show. Number one is we're going to give you the last word if you call in. We're not going to have an argument with you, even if we disagree, which is possible. But we're going to give you the last word so you don't have to feel afraid of being embarrassed or, or anything like that. Just call in. We'll have a discussion. If you can stay on the line, do so. We'll be able to talk to you and follow, with follow-up questions, or you can make follow-up comments. The other thing to remember when you call in any kind of radio show, there's a little bit of a delay, and that might be exaggerated just a bit because we do this show from our church building, a little room here, and it's done over Skype. So there's a, just a little bit of a delay, and if we talk over each other, we'll have to overlook that or try to work around it. We'll try not to do that. It certainly isn't intentional, so be patient with us. But we're trying to hear uh, what's being said, and sometimes it's not quite as clear as it could be coming back to from the radio station to us. So it's got to go through your cell phone, uh, phone, the cell towers, to the radio station, back to us through cell towers and whatnot. And so things Skype. Skype, and then you got to get this got to be processed into uh, my laptop. So in any event, mixers and laptops and everything else. And anyway, that's what we found out in trying to do this show over the years. Be a little bit of a problem. So be patient with us. We w- we want to have a conversation or talk with you. We'd love to hear what you have to say. And that is particularly true, I would think, in my own case anyway. Maybe I don't speak for Gary, but uh, particularly true if you're not a believer or if you disagree. We'd love to hear from you. And it makes the show interesting, gives us a different viewpoint. Maybe we have overlooked something or we're neglecting to say something or maybe we're just wrong about something. It could be. It's theoretically possible, isn't it, Gary, that we're wrong? I mean, uh, <laughs> You know, well, what's the what's the statistical probability? <laughs> yeah, sure, I'm sure that's the way it is. And we're smiling when we say this, but we, we'd love to have your comments or questions. So let me give you the numbers. You can reach us here at 772-340-1590. 772-340-1590 is the number. And we'd be glad to hear from you. That's the regular call number for WPSL. Also, you can reach us by text message. As you heard, my name is Mike Schmidt. At least we heard the name Mike Schmidt. That's me. And uh, my text number is 772-260-6120. That's my number. Gary Jones's text number. Very similar, 772-260-6220. You'd almost think we went down to AT&T on the same day and got phones, wouldn't you, just for this show? But we didn't. But we did. Pretty random. But in any event, those are the text numbers. You can use those numbers during the show. We'll, we, it should pop up on my screen or on my phone. We can get uh, get your message, maybe even respond to it on the air. We'd love to be able to do that. Uh, if not, you can also text us during the week. People sometimes do that with either comments, questions topics for another show, whatever it could be, you're welcome to use those two numbers for that, 772-260-6120, 772-260-6220. So we invite you to do that. We also have an email, which is justchristians at att.net, justchristians at att.net. Mike, you might want to mention that if any if anyone wants a, uh, basically, if anyone wants a private class, or us to teach, you know, at different times, we can do that. Just text us and let us know. Sure, that's right. If you'd, if you'd like to have a private Bible study, we'll be glad to get together with you uh, or any group of people for that matter and just to read the Bible with them, study, answer questions, try to point you to different scriptures and, and concepts about the scriptures. We'd, be, we'd love to be able to do that. Just either call or text those numbers. Uh, the, both of those numbers are cell phones you can call or text. 
and we'd be glad to hear from you uh, in that case. If you've got something that you would like to hear discussed, and we've had people do this even from out of state, they text a question or email a question to those to us, and then we can they can prepare a lesson and present that on the radio show. If you want to reach us by email, uh, that would be justchristians at att.net, justchristians at att.net. Okay, so we'll come back to those numbers a little bit. I'm trying something new this morning. You, know, you get, get the numbers out there uh, more frequently. We'll see how that works out. Now, last week, um, Gary, we started off and we, we ended up going a different direction. We started off with this article I found that Ray Kurzweil predicts the singularity by 2045. And I wanted to come back to that just for a few minutes because we, we went off another direction, which is fine. But the idea of the singularity is that it's kind of like the culmination. It's used in it's used in cosmology, the study of the universe, to mean that theoretical state of everything before the Big Bang. Everything in the entire universe was contained in something smaller than an atom in a single point of infinite smallness, as it were. You can believe that. And then just kind of exploded, to use a common word, and now we have the universe with everything in it. That's the singularity, oneness, being one. So he's predicting that because of artificial intelligence, AI, that they're going to be, it's good, by 2045, all human knowledge is going to be unified into, one, into a oneness that we won't be able to differentiate between from anything else in fact he says in 2029 by 2029 which is not that long far in the future it'll pass the turing test now the turing test was developed by a british computer scientist uh and a code breaker it says here that he was depicted in the award-winning movie the imitation game in and he proposed that Computers had effectively achieved human-like intelligence when a human investigator could not distinguish the performance of a computer from that of a human being. So he says, pretty soon we'll see that AI will be so good that it will not be able to distinguish between that and human being. Uh, I guess sometimes you still can distinguish between AI and, and people do, but he says it's just going to happen. And then once it does that, uh, and reaches just general human capability at uh, by that within a few short years computers will surpass human beings in, in every conceivable way and human beings though he says are not going to be left behind because we're going to move into the future together computers and humans and therefore he sees then since once we are reached this singularity of humans and computers being their own determining factor for what they do uh, and what is known, then you've reached this singularity and um, this AI will become so powerful that it acquires superhuman intelligence and is capable of growing and expanding on its own. Now, he this long article, I can give you the I can give you the uh, URL for it. It's uh, <laughs> It's in what magazine was that now? I'm trying to think where I found this, but you can look it up. Uh, All I can say is I'm not convinced, but well, could be. But what he's saying it, what this is, what this is, is the one of the latest expressions of what we talked about before. Now I'm going somewhere with this. I'm not just being negative on a news story here. I'm going somewhere with this. If you just, it, it would not Gary, but if we can just hang on for a minute, I know it. Had to set this up, but he ha he has what's called a transhumanist vision of the future. Transhumanism is the idea that's been gaining popularity over the last couple of decades that we're moving beyond human capabilities into a whole new world because we're giving humans ultra human capabilities. And and one of the things in the modern time, a lot of people, I think probably including Jordan Peterson would say that the birth control pill was one of the first real impactful transhumanist inventions because it 
gave humans the ability to control something fundamental about their nature by technology. And it altered human behavior significantly, which I think is true. Since 1965, when it became commonly available, that's one reason, and he'll say, people will tell you that's one reason we've seen all these shifts in human morality and in human attitudes and people becoming less compassionate, less concerned with other people, more concerned about their own individual um, satisfaction or whatever the case may be, because we've merged human uh, beings with technology in such a way that it alters human beings. He even says here that by 2029, he says uh, AI will give humans what he called longevity escape velocity, where AI-based medicine adds months to our lives faster than time is going by. So if you want to get if you want to achieve escape velocity from the Earth, you have to have more acceleration outward than the gravity is pulling you back. And once you get more outward than you do back and sustain that, you get escape velocity. You can escape Earth's gravity. With longevity velocity, you get where human life expectancy through technology is it's expanding faster than time itself. And so humans will eventually achieve a basically endless life as a whole. Life expectancy will go up dramatically over time and so forth. Now, well, that, where I'm trying to go with this, and we got a phone call, but uh, that that reminds me of something right. that basically we were that I I'd have to go look up the article, but it goes back to the early 80s, and it was predicted that if you live past the year 2000, medical science would have progressed to the point that you would be guaranteed to live to 2100. Yeah, and I don't see that happening, but maybe not for me and you, maybe. Yes. Happens. Well, but I certainly live past 2000. We've got all of these. We've got all of these predictions. And you know what? These secular scientists and, and what they call themselves sometimes, Gary, are futurists. They have made so many ridiculous, outlandish predictions in my lifetime. And no one ever holds them accountable for it. If I was on this radio station as as giving you uh, Bible prophecies and making outlandish claims about this and that, somebody would hold me accountable for that. But nobody ever holds a quote-unquote scientist or futurist accountable or global warming scientist. They never hold them accountable. No one holds Al Gore accountable or or some of the pro, uh, the other um, – People like that for their AOC or any of those. Nobody holds them accountable for the things that they say, not in any real sense of the word. Now, two things. First of all, uh, we're going to lay this aside for again because we have a phone call. We're going to get to that in just a second. But I want to give you the numbers again. The number to reach the show, 772-26, uh, excuse me, start over again, 772-340-1590, 772-340-1590. So anyway, give us a call if you'd like to join the show. Jerry's on the phone right now. Jerry, what can we do for you? Uh, Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Uh, uh, Gary. Excuse me. Uh, Very interesting show. Uh, My question uh, this this week is about the Spanish Inquisition. Uh, Was it it leading up to the Protestant Reformation, which I'm probably wrong about, Uh, but what I'm wondering is about Nostradamus, who was a physician, a doctor, uh, during the plague uh, in Europe, and he discovered how important fresh air and changing blessings is. And I, I wanted to know how, how, the, uh, how religion looks at Nostradamus, because he was risking his life being a, a French Jew. <laughs> Okay. 
Well, thank you very much. I appreciate you calling in, um, Jerry, for it very much. Now, two things about this. Uh, I don't can't say for sure the relationship historically between the Inquisition and the Reformation. My well, own, own recollection historically is that there is a link. It's a long-term link, though, not a short-term link. Well, the Brit Britannica gives the the length or the stay of the Spanish Inquisition is 1478 to 1834. I don't know where they get that. that. I, I don't know that that goes on that long. And the number of deaths in the Spanish Inquisition was relatively small, small compared to some of the modern deaths by non-religious sources. And it was limited to a very specific area. That's why it's called the Spanish Inquisition. It wasn't widespread all over Europe or anything like that. And I don't want to minimize the, the ridiculous horrors of the uh, Spanish Inquisition. I think that the relationship is more th this, that the Spanish Inquisition started uh, oh, in about 1180 or 1200. Is that what you're saying? Sh saying uh, around 1400, according according to this uh, Britannica. The well, it, it depends Britannica. how far you go back. If you want to call the 1478 of the Waldensians in Germany and northern Italy in 1200s, you can. Uh, so the the re the reform if it started in the in its intense form, probably in the 1400s, the Reformation came about around that time. In other words, they they began to try to translate some of these New Testament documents into the common language uh, of the people uh, in Europe, and the Pope reacted to that. That's why it's so ridiculous for Catholics to claim today that the Catholic Church has always supported uh, the Pope people reading the Bible. That is, there would have been no inquisition and no persecution of the so-called Protestants and, and the digging up of Wycliffe and his bones and scattering them all over the river if the Catholic Church had been fine with people reading the Bible in their own language. Now, that may not be the position of the Catholic Church today, which brings up a whole other issue, but the Church was react the Catholic Church was reacting to these popular movements of the uh, people to have the text of the New Testament in their own languages, beginning partly with the Waldensians, Waldenses, I can't, uh, and the Albigenses in Spain and in Germany, and they persecuted those people and wiped them out. And then you have this more intense Spanish Inquisition in Spain, and I think that those events, the reaction of the church so violently to any kind of change, really was a trigger behind people like Martin Luther having the courage or the desire to reform the Catholic Church. That's why it's called a reformation. Martin Luther, well said Martin Luther King, Martin Luther did not intend to destroy the Catholic Church. I know this is going to be shocking to some of you Lutherans, but Martin Luther did not intend to destroy the Catholic Church. Martin Luther did not intend to start a new church at all. In fact, he spoke against people doing that. He spoke against calling them people calling themselves Lutherans. But he intended to reform, that is, to internally change some things about the Catholic Church. And he remained a Catholic priest uh, all of his life. Okay. He did never renounce Catholicism or anything like that. Now, people that followed him, that followed his precepts, did. But there was a there was a there was a link there uh, between the two historically. It's kind of like uh, the, the the movement. One move, they they may have began separately organically, but they kind of fed off each other. One gave courage to another. Well, you're looking, you don't like look, look. Well, no, no, I'm here. I'm just looking at some of the reference material, and it's. It's really a tremendously complex subject because that's why I'm hesitant. Yeah, because it it looks like it was the late 1400s, early 1500s before the Catholic Church ever wrote anything down as far as instructions to suppress heresies. But some actual suppressions may have begun maybe a hundred years before that. Uh, it's you know. How you trace this thing is really, really historically complex, Mike. It's hard to say. Well, and that's why I'm saying there are several threads that go together. And you can look at the 
the uh, you can look at the the different literature about it, and uh, th there's all kind of things all going on all over Europe, and some of these did start way back with uh, uh, with the Waldenses and so forth, but the Inquisition itself really began. Uh, under Torquemada in, as the Inquisitor General, and he established courts across Spain, and torture became systematized and pretty routine to elicit confessions and um, so forth, and they uh, to going after all these heretics. And sometimes people fought back against it, and you know, all on on it went. It was a very ugly thing. Now, if you go and look at at um, Nostradamus. Nostradamus was French, um, and, and he was born in 1503, which is around this same time in general terms. Martin Luther nailed his uh, theses to the wall, I think, in 1530 or 1535, maybe a little bit before that. I forgot the exact year. So it was around this same time, and um, he was a very educated man, as Jerry pointed out a doctor, and then um, during the, the uh, years of the plague, which was just wiping out whole villages, 70% uh, of some villages in England were just wiped out by the plague. He traveled around France and Italy treating victims of the plague, and there was no known remedy at that time and so forth, so they relied on mercury and bloodletting and garlic and all this kind of stuff. So he began to develop some kind of what they would call progressive treatments here. This is what history.com says about it. And by practicing effective hygiene and encouraging the removal of the infected corpses from the city streets. So he made then a, a pill of rose hips and rich in vitamin C and, you know, cured some people who had a mild case of it because just like any other plague, some people get it and they have a deadly reaction. They're weakened or they have a severe reaction. Some people have a natural immunity. And to some it. people have more immunity. Some people don't get sick. And so you have this whole range of people exposed to the uh, effects of the of the plague, which was what we now know is it was carried in fleas, carried by rats that infected humans with with this bacterial disease and so forth. So anyway, he was pretty successful compared to most people, most doctors, for his treatments. And he became kind of a local celebrity in uh, in France and so forth. And all that kind of thing. He he became a he became a celebrity and trying to figure out uh, and, and when they continued to try to figure out what was wrong. Now he his he's more famous, not so much for that, and I'm, it's interesting that Jerry brought that up. He's more famous, of course, for making predictions. He predicted that the world, and I'll give him credit for this, Gary. He predicted the world would end at something like 3737. Most people that predict the end of the world today, like you're hearing on Sunday morning, really Protestant religious television, are predicting the world to end in our lifetime or very soon, right? He he predicted it. 1500 years in the future from his time in unusual makes me think it has more credibility <laughs> some ways, <laughs> but what the problem with these kind of things is from a Christian standpoint, I don't believe he was a prophet of God. If some people had like these futurists, it's interesting. He brought it. We're talking about futurists. Nostradamus was somewhat of a futurist. He, he was looking further into human history into the future and trying to predict how humans would act. And he, he was wrong about almost everything he said, but he was right in two or three things, at least in a vague way. The more vague his prophecy, the better chance you have of it being fulfilled, right? Yeah. And that's true of any prophecy. And some of them are pretty vague. Pretty, pretty vague. That's right. So he made a lot of vague prophecies. Uh, about different things, and some of them have come true in a broad sense or general sense of the word to come true, and so he, he's become kind of famous. Now, in the last 15 or 20 years, I've heard a lot less about Nostradamus because I think a lot of the things that he said just haven't come true, and people can see that. 
Now, let me see if I can find what the Bible says about prophets. If you want to be a prophet, uh, it's in Deuteronomy 18. Yeah. Okay. And um, he says to the people in Deuteronomy 18, not listening to prophets, God's going to raise up a prophet like Moses says. God's going to raise up a prophet like me. And I think he's speaking of the Christ from among you. From among you, you're going to hear his voice. And I'm going to raise up this prophet and put my words in his mouth and so forth. We got another phone call, but let me get finish what we're saying here. And so he says, whoever will hear this prophet, I'll bless him. Whoever will not hear this prophet, uh, I'm going to require his life from him. So now he says, if you say in your heart, verse 21 of Deuteronomy 18, if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? How are we going to know if a prophet's telling the truth or not? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that thing is that which which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. When a person is considered to be a prophet, especially one that claims to be a prophet, and the thing he says does not come to pass, God says, don't be afraid of that prophet. He didn't speak in my name, because if I spoke to him, the thing that would, ha would have happened, it would have happened the way he said. So that's a standard test to know if a prophet is from God or not, whether the thing he says comes to pass. And so since so many of Nostradamus's prophecies, so many of Gene Dixon's prophecies or whoever else they are, do not come to pass. We only hear about the one or two that maybe look like they might come to pass. Gary, I got a book. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to have Ken on the phone. I'm going to make him hold just for a second. I have a book. I picked it up in a, in a used bookstore about the year 1975 or 76. It's what the seers predict for 1972. I think I've this <laughs> before. So I, I picked up this old, somebody had thrown it away. I picked it up in the used bookstore, and it was already three or four years old, so I started thumbing through it. And it predicted, for example, that the Miami Dolphins would have a terrible season and have a losing record. Of course, that's the year they went undefeated. <laughs> just, I just marked up some of the page of this book. Of all of these things, these so-called seers, these prophets, and it was a big deal back then. That's when Gene Dixon's prophecies were real popular and all that. Uh, and, and the truth is, young people have no idea who I'm talking about when I say Gene Dixon because she stated into history because her prophecies were not true most of the time. But anyway, um, they predicted so many wrong things. The whole pages book is marked all up. And I just kept it. I still got it somewhere. I have to look it up and see. Probably more ridiculous now than it was then. But that, right. that idea. Well, yeah, you say something and we'll let well, like Ken talk. But by the way, that he has spoken it presumptuously comes from the word pride and proud and arrogant and insolent. That's where that word comes right. from. Now, I don't know what I'm not trying to say that Nostradamus was an insolent, ungodly man. I don't know that. And I don't know what the nature of his predictions was. I don't think he was a, a Christian man in the sense that we would think. So a Bible believing Christian man, he was probably much more secular. And that's why he was making these predictions. But I didn't say that to dump on him because he apparently did make some contribution to human uh, welfare in his dealing with people in the plague, which is often overlooked. The good thing he did is probably overlooked by the prophecies that he made, right? Right. All right. All right, let's go to Ken. Are you on the phone, Ken? Yeah, Mike, I'm here. How you doing? Good, good. Um, uh, main reason for my call is I'm going to revise my notes I gave you. Okay. On the subject of... Uh, uh, the birth of Jesus being in September and his being conceived in December. So I revised that. I, I corrected my mistakes, and I'm giving you a new copy this morning. Okay, very good. Well, you know, I don't, I didn't, I don't know what mistake you might be referring to. I know that you had apparently made a correction. Well, there's one, one, one that I think was just a typo. A typo yeah. I put born when I should have had conceit. Conceit, yeah, yeah. yes. Well, well I'll tell you what, let, let me re, let's repeat the email. If anybody, this is an interesting subject. I'm not endorsing everything Ken says, nor is he endorsing everything I say, but I think he's done some good work here. And uh, from reading it, 
and it's worth your looking at, especially this time of year. Let me see if I let me give you give you your email address. It's Ken underscore Hayden at bellsouth.net. Is that correct? Yes, that's great. Ken K E N underscore Hayden H A Y D E N. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Kenneth. Kenneth. Ah, I do. I got I got it written down here. Kenneth K E N N E T H. Kenneth underscore Hayden, H-A-Y-D-E-N, at bellsouth.net. You can also, if you want a copy of this, you can also text or email me, uh, and you can use justchristians at att.net, or shocking discovery uh, you can use um, justchristians at att.net, or you can text 772-260-6120, and I'll send you a copy of it since Ken gave one to me. I'll send you a copy of his notes. But I think it's a very interesting study, and, and it's something that um, a lot of people have never thought about. Would you agree with that, Ken? That's the trouble. They've never even considered this as a possibility. Yeah, yeah, and, and most of all, most of all, it's it's true. Well, I think it. I think it certainly. I think it certainly is true, from what I can tell. And I've said this before in general about this, uh, about this topic, because I've spoken on this topic before. That as far as the birth of Jesus, this is, this is the only way you can get there to any understanding of when the birth of Jesus happened from the Bible. Now, still not spelled out explicitly in the Bible. You have to deduce and infer a few of these things, which is not necessarily an error. It doesn't make something wrong because you have to deduce or infer it. But it's the closest you're going to get in the Bible. You certainly can't get December 25th out of the Bible, the one that everybody falls down and worships at, December 25th. Uh, you can't get that in the Bible and the, all that, but you can get the teaching or th- interesting scriptures that Ken is getting you in this little, his little, um, what do you want to call it, pamphlet, or it's shorter than that, actually, but uh, some scripture references and comments about it. So if you'd like to receive it, Kenneth underscore Hayden at bellsouth.net, or you can. No, at att.net. Which is it? Is it att.net or bellsouth.net? Bellsouth. Bellsouth. Okay. Sorry about that. And then there's just Christians at att.net is mine. Or you can text me 772-260-6120. I'm not going to give them your phone number, Ken. I think I have it maybe here somewhere because you called in. But uh, I, I live on the edge. I give them my phone number so far. You know, me me giving out my phone number. Uh, is about like the guy that fell off a building and as he passed each window on each floor, he said, so far, so good, so far, so good. That's about what giving out your phone number on the radio is. (laughs) So far, so good. (laughs) Anyway, you want to add anything more to that, Ken? Yeah, yeah, I do. First first of all, I will send them the revised accurate accurate, uh, notes. Okay, so today... I'd like to address um, Hanukkah. Hanukkah. So, okay, before you do that, let me Jesus, let me get you yeah, uh, mention the New Testament. Uh, go ahead, Ken. Do let, that again. let me give the phone numbers real quick again: seven seven two two six zero six one two zero seven seven two two six zero six one two zero. Or uh, oh, just go ahead. And call, I got that all wrong. It's three four zero fifteen ninety seven seven two. Three four zero fifteen ninety. You know, I can see me giving all these numbers consistently is going to really, going to really mess with my brain. So anyway, that's the numbers. Go ahead, Ken. We're going to talk about Hanukkah. Okay. Yeah. John John ten twenty two mentions Hanukkah. Okay. Let me look uh, it up. And it was, it was at Jerusalem, the feast of dedication, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. This is right after the, his teaching about the good shepherd and all of that kind of stuff. So this feast yeah. of dedication in verse 30, 22, uh, and I believe you're correct about this, is what we today 
would call Hanukkah or something like right. that. Hanukkah means dedication. Right. That's what it means. So it's the feast of Hanukkah. So it's ironic, Kim, what you're saying, I'm going to interrupt you just for a second, is that Christmas is not in the Bible, but Hanukkah is. How do you like that for an inflammatory headline or statement? Anyway, go ahead. And and, as, and like I said earlier, claimed earlier that it was a delayed celebration of tabernacles, the tabernacles. Which would be tense. And I don't know if you're going to make this point. You probably are. But John 1 says that Christ dwelt among men and so forth. The word dwelt among men, and that's the word for tents or tabernacles, right? Right, right. Uh, the incarnation. Okay, go ahead. There's actually two different Hebrew words mean the same thing. Tabernacles, booth, okay. and sukkah all mean the same thing, but they're different Hebrew words. Now, the word manger, the Hebrew word is sukkah. So when it says he was lying in a manger, he was lying in a tabernacle. Or now, a booth. Yeah. You look at the nativity. Y'all you've all seen the nativity thing, right? Right. What does the building look like? How many walls does it have? Well, they usually don't have a front on it and it's a sloping if I'm picturing the generic kind of but it's three, it's three walls. Three walls. Three walls, no front. And if you look up the instructions for building a tabernacle, and from, you know, when Moses said he uh, commanded Moses that the people should build tabernacles to dwell in, in the wilderness, it's a three sided uh, wall. So when you look at a nativity scene, you're looking at a tabernacle. So when they say he was lying in a manger, it doesn't mean a, a, a trough where the animals ate out. That meant in the in the building. Right. Now they did use these kind of booths or whatever as places where they would keep animals, shelter animals. Yes. Yes. Like a lean-to or a small hut. And it may be, but that's not the main meaning of it, is it? No. So the word, what you're saying is the prophecy of, or the statement that uh, this, you go find this child who's going to be lying in a booth, was kind of a play on the idea that it's this child is being tabernacled or tinted. Mm-hmm. Not, like tinted windows, but T-E-N-T-E. Well, Strong defines the word there as tent or in camp. Yes, it's a it's like a it's like mm-hmm. any tent. So they made these in the wilderness, and then God used it to say, "I'm going to come in and, and tabernacle among you." He's going to build his tabernacle. Right. It was it was it was a symbol of God's presence being with you, living with it. Now, two or three things I want to say about this. One is that in our in our culture, we're not nomads. We're not agricultural herders and livestock people and nomads. So some of this figure wouldn't become apparent to us. And I think that's why modern Americans more focus, including myself, on the temple, which is more of a modern building and and um, has a different kind of analogy or innate meaning than a tent or a tabernacle or an animal hut. And whereas the people that this, these books were originally written to would have had a lot of connection, not with an elaborate temple, but with the booth. God originally told them, he didn't tell them to build a temple originally, he told them to build a tabernacle. But anyway, those are just some thoughts. And I, I plead guilty to that. I tend to think more of the temple than I do the tabernacle. Yeah, the other thing that's interesting, I just noticed uh, yesterday, uh, the Feast of Dedication, which is what Hanukkah is, 
uh, is on the 25th of Kislev, the Jewish month of Kislev. So that may be why they came up with the 25th, it being in winter, the 25th of the month. I don't know. Uh, but uh, I mean, Hanukkah is known as the Festival of Lights also. Yes. During the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the ceremonies was they put up huge menorahs in the Temple of the Women. And we can speculate about why the Temple of the Women. I think you're trying to make the connection. Uh, so you put up well, these can, can I, spe- I would speculate that. I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Ken. Yeah, so they use old priestly garments for the wicks for these candles. Or, or they were actually bowls of oil that lighted the light. And uh, those old priestly garments are known in the New Testament as swaddling clothes. Okay. So they you, were making these lights out of the priestly and you see also the connection between Hanukkah and Tabernacles, because that was, was a festival in the Tabernacles, and now they're calling Hanukkah Festival of Light. So that's when you can look at the parallel and say this is when, according to Second Corinthians, this is when God brought light into the world. Let there be light. Right. Paul says. Okay. So dedication of the Tabernacles, uh, 26th is. Uh, uh, the Maccabees rededicated the tabernacle on the 25th of Kislev. Uh, Moses dedicated the tabernacle on the 25th of Kislev. And the dedication of the altar under Ezra and Nehemiah was also on the 25th of Kislev. Okay. So, uh, kind of all lined up there. Okay, yeah, that's all. So, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to sum up what I think we should be celebrating this time of year. Birth of Christ, death of Christ, and dwelling in Christ. Or, or, or Christ dwelling among men is it, it, another way to see that, too. The, the incarnation, I think, is when it says he dwelt among he dwelt among men or tabernacled with us. I think that's speaking of the incarnation. In fact, Hebrews says he became a sharer in flesh and blood. Hebrews 7, I believe it is. He became a sharer in flesh and blood, partaker, equal partaker in flesh and blood. So that would be um, something else for us to consider about that. Uh, let me pause here for a second, Ken. I'm trying to do something new today. Uh, let me remind, remind you, if you'd like to participate in the show, we have plenty of time left for you to call in. 772-340-1590. 772-340-1590 is the number. Give us a call if you'd like to either join this, the discussion or change the subject. You're both Both things are welcome. Well, I, I think it's an interesting connection and what it really strikes me as, Ken, in a broad sense, is uh, how much deeper some of these figures and type the typology is much more elaborate and 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 prominent than than we often give credit to. And I think that some of it's because it it gets a little bit lost in translation, but the typology is so strong. And I think that's why over time there are some Jews who know the Old Testament who begin to see these parallels and realize that this man, Jesus, was the Messiah and does fulfill these prophecies. But it's not something that just God reaches out and grabs you by the throat and makes you believe it. It takes some effort to see these things. Well, you have to learn these things, but then... When you see these things, or at least for me, when I see these things, it's an indication of the planning that God put into this. 
All of these things that happened were according to his plan. They weren't by chance. They weren't, okay, this didn't work out like I thought I'll do this. Instead, it was all planned from the beginning and worked the way he planned it. Consistently through this discussion in the New Testament, especially by the later writers, it'll say, according to the scriptures, Scriptures. Christ was right, according to the scriptures. Ken, I want to make one point, and then I'm going to let you finish up here. You mentioned that these lights were set up in the court of the Gentiles. Now, I'm not, I don't think that's a biblical, excuse me, court of the women. I don't think that's a biblical document. It's the Maccabees. But it, it's interesting, maybe in an ironic sense, because this light that Christ brought to the world was meant to go beyond just the Jews and the Jewish men and the priests to everyone. And that's why they, that may be whether they meant it or not. That's what happened there. This light that was put forth from the temple out across Jerusalem was going from the place where everybody was welcome as it were. And Christ's life was spent in that. Tabernacle was like that. It wasn't just the Jews that could go into the original tabernacle. Yeah. Into a certain place, so into a certain part of that. That's right. Restriction. Right. That's the biggest thing. That's the bigger. That's the great mystery that everybody keeps looking for. It's right there in the New Testament, plain as day. The mystery is that God would save the Gentiles the same way He saves the Jews. That's the mystery that everybody would be brought in. That's the one thing that that the certain kinds of Jews could not accept, and the Gentiles didn't even thought it was foolishness, but. It wasn't. It's what God's plan was. It's what Christ's life, the way, the reason he lived his life the way he did, the reason he grew up in Nazareth and so so forth is because of this. Well, the same, some very important things that you said there, Mike, because saving the Gentiles was in the Old Testament many places. It was the how he was going to bring them in through the gospel that was the mystery. Yeah, but they didn't accept that he was going to save them, except unless they just became Jews in right. some fashion. And and they had to become a Jew, and that became the controversy. And the new, much of the New Testament writings are about this controversy over how can the Gentiles be saved? Do they have to become Jews and serve the, with the priesthood, or what can they do? Question again. Is, exactly. It was how he was going to do it. Right. But that, many of them rejected it outright that any Gentile could yeah. ever be saved. And I think that's true today. But God intended this all along. It was a major feature of Christ's ministry. And I think it's one reason he was rejected uh, from by the leaders of the Jews. You want to add anything to this, Ken? Yeah. Um, yeah. During the Feast of Tabernacles, I mentioned that they had a festival of light. And uh-huh. called Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And they also had a water pouring ceremony. And uh, Jesus was always talking about living water. Particularly, he mentioned living water to two women, the woman at the well and the woman caught in adultery. Right. These two, these two, these two women, Gentile and one caught in adultery, huh? Yeah. So what do you think the significance of that is? Yeah, he was referencing Pizza Tabernacle. And he's talking about both those things. Okay. And it's referred to in, in a couple of ways. Primarily, as you say, as living water, but also as the water of life. How yeah. how big of a deal I know that's technical language. How big of a deal is it to, is this Feast of Tabernacles both among Orthodox Jews or Messianic Jews, Ken? Do you know? Feast uh, of uh, Messianic Jews always uh, build a, a uh, Sukkot or a tabernacle during this time of year. A booth, okay. Do they live in it? Yes. Okay. Well, uh, symbolically, maybe not. It depends on how dedicated they are to the idea. And how cold it is. Well, I forgot the exact requirements of this uh, of this in the old Testament. I had to look it up here, but the Jews were required to live in this tabernacle 
for several days during this time as a reminder that they had been slaves and they had been in the wilderness. God had taken them through the wilderness and known, and now that now they had houses to live in. So uh, it doesn't seem that the Old Testament connects up this tabernacling with the coming Messiah directly, but those are prob- that's probably symbolic of something. I never picked that up reading the account of Moses where he said what they're supposed to do. That's why I wondered whether, because I think that probably from what I can tell culturally in America, modern Jews more keep the keep the feast of Hanukkah or Passover, possibly the Day of Atonement, uh, more so than they do tabernacles. Now I may be wrong about that, but that's my that would be an observation from common culture. What I notice. Because when I was living down in Fort Lauderdale, Hollywood area for several years, preaching down there some years ago, the reason I got interested in studying about the Passover and preaching on the Passover and some of the other feasts is because of the questions I would get from people in the church, other places, because certain of these Jewish feasts were commonly talked about down there in the newspaper, on TV or in advertising. And I just don't remember anything. No one ever asked me about the Feast of Tabernacles Mm -hmm. uh, as being a common thing that people were thinking about down there because there's a heavy Jewish population, as you know, in Dayton Broward, where I was living. And and kids would get out of school and all that kind of stuff. So (laughs) it makes you wonder when we lived up near Chicago, Ken, the kids got out of school for Roman Polanski Day. Not Roman Polanski. (laughs) What's that guy's name? That Polish general who helped in the who helped in the Revolutionary War. Uh, that's not Roman Polanski is that pedophile yeah. Hollywood guy, but it's, it's a name like that. And I can't think of his name now. So, you know, I went from uh, Polish general from Jewish feast to Polish generals and areas I was preaching. But anyway, maybe it maybe I'm missing some of the significance of it. But I had always viewed this idea of the tabernacle or him dwelling among us, a temporary thing is also related Compared to eternity, our life is a very temporary thing. Our life here on this earth, we're we're only here for a short time. Right, and and we should. Uh, I, I always associate with being reminded of the blessings that you have, um, to and and so forth. And I got that impression from what he told them in the Old Testament, but I really see this though now when you bring it into the New about dwelling among us. And I years ago I read that and I looked it up and I'm like, wow, that that's talking about the tabernacle, I think, and. And I I didn't connect it up like your yeah Kazmir Pulaski that's what somebody texted in yes thank you yes the the great Polish general who apparently saved the United States and you know like all the other Lafayette and all the others it wasn't Americans it was always those foreign guys but anyway um, all right Ken let's finish up here yeah let me okay. give the numbers before we do that seven seven two Two six zero seven seven two three four zero fifteen ninety. Go ahead. Now we're not only celebrating his birth and his death, but his resurrection. Yes. Now, which of these three days I'll raise it up. Yes. He, 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 you can destroy this temple. Or maybe he uses the word tabernacle there. I haven't. Is that what you're saying? No, I think he uses. I don't know. I, I, I believe he uses temple, temple there, and I will raise it up. You just made me think. Well, maybe he uses a different word that I'm thinking of there. If you destroy this temple, I'll raise it up. But he was speaking of the temple proper that they were looking at and saying, "Yeah, you think I'm talking about that one, but I'm not." But uh, the Lord's Supper in in the Lord's Supper in the in keeping of the elements of the Lord's Supper. He says, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, as I mentioned many times before, that as often as you do this, and they were doing it on the first day of the week, as often as you do this, as you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And the point I make about that, I think it's a valid point. I don't know what you think, Ken, is that if Christ is not raised from the dead, he's not coming again. So there's no coming to it. He 
he, the only reason he can come back and come again is because he was raised from the dead. So we remember his death on the first day of the week. But he said it even in this, if I've got if I've interpreted the passage correctly, when he told the disciples at the Last Supper, I'll not eat of this again until I eat it with you in the kingdom of God. He was saying to them. That's what he does. He We commune with the Lord, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11. It's a communion with the Lord when we take the supper. So we're remembering the fact that he was died, was resurrected, and now he's in heaven. So we're honoring that fact and proclaiming it when we keep the Lord's Supper. I'm on the right track there, you think, Ken? Yeah. You know, when Moses asked God what his name was, he said, I am the one who was, who is, and who is to come. And that's how it's presented in the book of Revelation in certain ways. Yes. We'll see. Of course, the, by the time you get to the end of the book, he doesn't put on the is to come because he's already come at the end of the book. But in any event, that's another whole subject. But uh, that is the whole thing. You know, this <laughs> Jordan Peterson, for whatever you think of him, made an interesting little video. I'm going to I'm probably going to do a lesson, something like this. He said that that the modern mantra of, of man is, I am my own person. I am. And he contrasts the modern sexual ethos and the modern transgender movement, which is a symptom of the modern movement of man away from God as an I am movement. I am woman. I am capable. I am my, the the master of my own destiny. And he uses some of these things. And, and he says, this is in direct contrast to Jehovah saying, I am, that's my name. So man, modern man has taken over God's name as his own standard of being in the in, in Western society. And so our whole culture is based on this notion of I am. And I think there's something to that. Well, basically, back to the Garden of Eden. Yes, I was going to say it goes back to the Garden of Eden. What did Satan offer Eve? Basically, he said, don't you want to be like God? Don't you want to be as he is there? That's what man's always wanted. All of the ceremonies before the law and after the law and with the law and in Christ, all of those things that God requires of man, including sacrifices and everything else, baptism, all are running against that grain that you are the one to be exalted. God's the one to be exalted. Man is not the one to be exalted. Man's the one who's to be obedient. So everything runs against the grain of what modern culture is trying to teach you in every way uh, from your childhood on. And you have to recognize that for what it is and makes you seem like a rather negative person but that's the problem is that it isn't you need to we need to be against that kind of thing well and i, I don't want to mention before we have to go because we're just about out of time first corinthians chapter 15 beginning in verse 12 and you should read on several verses probably through 20 or 25 but it talks about the importance of the resurrection of christ and i wish we had time to read it but i don't but i'm going to read one line of it from verse 19 he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. If we only have hope in Christ. And and that is, uh, that's the conclusion he comes to in that entire chapter. A good one to read. Well, our time is gone. Ken, thank you for calling today. I'm sorry we're going to have to cut off our discussion, but I appreciate your comments. If you want to get Ken's document, get a hold of the email I gave you earlier, him or me, you can text the number that I gave you for myself, and I'll be glad to send that to you. Thanks for listening today. All of you hope that you'll make it a habit every week. We want to tell you quickly about our website, which is wearejustchristians.com. Wearejustchristians.com. You can find lots of resources there, archives of sermons and all kinds of other stuff. And so we'd like to have you, uh, you know, take a look at that. See if you can you can look up different. It's a searchable database almost of all kinds of topics. Some of them are just exhortations of scripture. Some of them are about topics like angels and demons and the Holy Spirit, things like that. Uh, Take a look at and also we'd like to invite you to come and worship with us at 10, 11, uh, 10 and 11 today and 730 on Wednesday night. 
and uh, that's at 2196 Southwest Savona Boulevard, 2196 Southwest Savona Boulevard here in Port St. Lucie. So come and be with us, and may God bless you until next week. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to We Are Just Christians live from Savona Church in Port St. Lucie, heard every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. till 10 a.m.